Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. You have two seats way up in the boonies, and you have two seats right on the floor. What do you do? If I understand this parable, you give the good seats to your friend. You, you give your, the good seats to, to someone else, and then you take the lowest place, which in this case is the highest place, but only because it's furthest away from the action. And the reality is, let's, let's just be honest, we would struggle with that decision. In today's broadcast, we begin in Luke chapter 14, and in Pastor Sam's message, Count the Cost, we will look at the entire chapter. Today is part one, and Sam will take us through verse 20. Discussions and parables about feasting are on our plate today, so let's jump in. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 14. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Luke 14, title of our study, Count the cost. Now it happened, we read, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent and he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. This first story, well, it takes us to the dinner, dinner table. Jesus is the guest of honor. But those who invited him are actually not there to bless him or honor him or listen to or learn from him. They've actually invited him in the hopes of ensnaring him and entrapping him. They've also invited a hurting, needy, wounded guy. He has a very disabling and, and a difficult disease called dropsy. And, and their hope is that they'll be able to get Jesus. Well, they don't have to get him to do anything, do they? That they will see Jesus heal this guy and they'll be able to say, hey, you're violating the Sabbath, just as we saw in the last chapter. Similar scene, similar situation. They're in a synagogue, a hurting woman. Jesus' eyes go to her. His heart goes out to her. He heals her. Now we have this situation in the house. Well, immediately what God shows me, and I hope you see it as well, is that the host here and those who were a party to this whole scam and sham, they're violating the greatest commandment and the second. They're violating the greatest commandment because that's to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Certainly there's nothing about what they're doing that would suggest that's where their hearts are. And then to love our neighbor as ourselves, they've invited this poor and needy guy, but only so they could take advantage of him, so they could use and abuse him for their own nefarious purposes. Now, Jesus isn't easily ensnared, and I do appreciate the, the many ways these fools try to trap him or trick him, but if you've raised kids, you know that, that it doesn't take long before they try to work you, they watch you, they, they try to figure you out, and if you have little girls, man, they do it by three years old. They're just so sharp. If you have guys, it takes to four or five just because of the language issue. But, but the bottom line is the idea of your children manipulating you or conning you or tricking you 
Well, you know that that's absurd. It isn't going to happen. And, and that's exactly what's going on here. here. Here are God's own children trying to trick and trap and ensnare our Lord. Well, again, sometimes, and we saw this last time, the synagogue leader representing, by the way, the enemy of our souls who comes sometimes like a roaring lion. He gets right in the face of those who had gathered together in the synagogue. And after Jesus heals, and we saw the irony of this, he doesn't rebuke Jesus. He rebukes the people, but he's rebuking them for coming for healing on the Sabbath. And, and the reality is Jesus is the one who has worked the miracle. And so we see this religious man, the spiritual leader, actually accusing and slandering and, and well, he's working for the enemy. And now we see a similar situation, only this time the lawyers and the, the religious ruler who invited Jesus and this hurting man, they're more like that subtle serpent, you know, Satan sometimes overt and in your face and aggressive and intense. This time they're silent before our Lord. And I love it. He takes the initiative. He knows what's going on. He sees through all of this. He not only knows what they're doing, but why they're doing it. So he asked them a question. Now it says in verse three, and it can be a little puzzling. He answered. He didn't answer anything they said. He answered what they were thinking, what they were trying to do. He reads their minds, their hearts as he does ours. So he answers speaking to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, that's a question they're not willing to answer. So he heals the guy. He sort of says, you know, you're free to go. I mean, this isn't really a feast this guy fits into anyway. And, uh, and then he says, which of you having a donkey or an ox that falls into a pit would not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Again, they have nothing to say. And so his second question reveals their hardness of heart toward this suffering man. Why? Because they would have rescued their animals, but they didn't care for this man that our Lord reached out to rescue. So similar in many ways to what we looked at last time, but with its own implications. Now, on the back of all this, Jesus begins to instruct. And, and the first thing he does is he's going to challenge the one who invited him. And then he's going to challenge those who had been invited. And, and in the process, well, he's going to show us that, that um, the pride, the arrogance, the audacity of, of this religious leader and what he was trying to pull off here. It's not something that escaped Jesus' attention. And he's going to call us to learn from it, to make sure that we're not prideful or arrogant or foolish in our interaction with the Lord, but that we're humble and, and, and well, you'll see it. Then he's going to move from how he was being treated. And again, that has to do with our relationship to God, since he is God, the son and the son of God, to, to how they treated this hurting and needy and, and wounded man. Uh, their lack of compassion and care, well, he'll deal with that issue and then some others. Now, one other thing in the way of introduction, we're looking at a feast. We'll look at a series of illustrations and parables concerning feast. And then at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate a feast. We're going to take the bread and the cup and we're going to be reminded of, of how we ended up following after Jesus in the first place. Well, he told a parable um, to those who were 
invited. So, excuse me, he starts with uh, those guests and then he's going to move on to the one who invited him. And he noted, it says, how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, uh, come and say, give place to this man. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus uses the imagery of a wedding feast and, and let's put ourselves in that scene because it helps us really understand how bizarre this, uh, you know, what he's dealing with is. If you've attended weddings and wedding receptions at any point or recently especially, you know that, that well, the wedding party, they have a table set up exclusively for them. You have the bride and the groom, you have the best man and the, the maid of honor, and then you have all the other people. You know they all belong up there because they're all dressed alike, you see. And how bizarre would it be to go to the reception after a wedding and see some guy just in his t-shirt and jeans or something sitting up there next to the bride you know her dad's going to come up and say, excuse me, this place is reserved for the maid of honor. This place is reserved for the best man. And by the way, we have a place for you. It's with all the random people that you're not sure what side they belong to, but they're in the back. You've seen that table, right? Some of you've been there, I know. But uh, it's the, the table's around and you're like, who are all these people and how did I end up with them? That's really what he's talking about here. Taking a place we don't belong. It's obvious to others we don't belong. And, and Jesus wants to deal with this age abiding principle. The idea is as I exalt myself, it's clear to everyone that this just isn't right. But if I humble myself and then the Lord decides, hey, I'm going to bring you up here. I'm going to do this with you or I'm going to give you a seat of honor. Well, first of all, he would have clothed you for that occasion. You would have been invited to that table. You would be, well, there because you belonged there. The age-abiding principle, and there are a couple other issues, but the age-abiding principle is in verse 11. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This carries over into every generation. And, and just in case you're new to all of this, and haven't figured out that you can't work or manipulate the Lord, be sure about this. If you're thinking, so wait, I seat myself with the random group back here and that's how I get to the front table. No, you'll stay there and you belong there because the Lord's going to say, no, that's not the heart that gets you from that table to this table. The idea that I could exalt myself by pretending to humble myself, that's even more offensive than the original problem. Well, we don't all go to dinner parties and we don't all go to wedding receptions. And, and if that's not your thing, perhaps, you know, you could relate. You've been invited to a concert. Somebody has given you four tickets to your favorite artist or perhaps a, a, a sporting event. You've been to Arco Arena, many of you, I'm sure. And uh, if you've ever been down there, you, you know that, that, well, there are these, these seats. They call them the nosebleed seats because you get up there and they're so far from the, the game or the concert that it's sort of like you need binoculars to see what's going on. Then there are seats all the way down on the floor. So picture this. Somebody gives you four tickets. You're going to bring your best friend and you're going to bring your other two best friends. And, and here's your dilemma. 
you have two seats way up in the boonies and you have two seats right on the floor. What do you do? If I understand this parable, you give the good seats to your friend. You, you give your, the good seats to, to someone else and then you take the lowest place, which in this case is the highest place, but only because it's furthest away from the action. And, and the reality is, let's, let's just be honest, we would struggle with that decision. And, and here's what I've noticed. Here's what the Lord does, at least in me, and I hope he's doing it in you. We'll have these studies and I prepare for him. He speaks to me as I prepare. He speaks to me sometimes as I'm sharing. He'll speak to me later in the day and he'll say, you know, that wasn't just something I wanted you to tell them. And I'm like, I know. But, but he's like, no, I really want you to pay attention. And inevitably someone will call and they'll give me tickets and I'll actually be faced with a dilemma just like this. And I'll be doing my best to, to press on into the next study so I don't have to think about this one. And the Lord will be saying, no, 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 I want you, I want you to actually put this into practice. And, and that's the whole point. Not just that we know he wants us to humble ourselves, that he's offended by our pride and arrogance. And remember, there's a context here, his invitation to this whole thing. He's talking to those people he sees fighting for the best places. And he's saying, that's not what I'm about at all. Well, we get to the next illustration. Now he turns in verse 12 to the he who invited him. And he says, when you give a dinner or supper, that's exactly what he was doing, by the way. Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, this is the beginning of a few things Jesus has to say that are beyond challenging. I mean, he's later going to say some stuff that just flat out floors you because you know he said other things that, that well, they don't just imply the opposite. They are the opposite. So is Jesus actually saying here when we have a dinner party, we shouldn't invite our family and friends, that, that we shouldn't be fellowshipping with one another? You know that can't be. What's he doing? He's dealing again with their motivation and he is reinforcing how bizarre it was that they invited someone who was maimed, who was hurt, who was suffering from a painful and debilitating disease, dropsy, to just use and abuse him at the dinner party. So he, he's kind of rubbing some salt in the wound as it were here. Well, Again, he's, he's uh, showing us that, that, well, when we invite, and by the way, in just a moment, he'll tell yet another story, and, and he will, in that story, invite the very people he's saying we should be looking out for, that we should be caring for the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. By the way, at least three of those four, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, they would have all been considered ceremonially defiled by this religious group. And, and what that means is if you're passing the bread and you touch one of them, well, now you're defiled ceremonially and you got to go through this whole fancy uh, washing and, and, and it just sort of messes with the whole thing. So these people, by and large, would have been excluded from regular get-togethers and especially get-togethers among rulers and leaders and, and those who prided themselves on who they were and how different they were from everyone else. Well, Jesus' point here is, is when you're celebrating, when you're giving a feast, you want to be like him. And he 
extends an open invitation. His eyes, as we saw last time, as we are reminded this time, always go right to the most needy person in the room. And the more needy people, the better for him because he's the one who comes to meet those needs, to touch the hurting and the wounded and, and to bless them. So, so uh, he, he's not saying we can't have fellowship with each other or we shouldn't invite our family. He can't be saying that because he knows that we know we're supposed to be doing those very things. But he is saying, don't let your motivation be just inviting those who are a blessing to you or could repay you. Make sure you're watching out for those who can't repay you, who have no way to reciprocate. And, and then he promises he'll repay. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. It's really the heart of this. For then he says, you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. He's reminding us we're not to look for our rewards today. We're to do good today, knowing our reward awaits us in heaven. And, and um, one other issue before we press on in all of this, not only is this a, a picture of how he wants us to deal, but, but it is a reminder that, well, this is how he sees us. Poor Remember in, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? To be poor in spirit is to understand that, that I have no inherent or acceptable righteousness, that there's nothing in me or about me that would cause the Lord to love me. He loves me because his nature and character is to love. And he loves each of us that very same way. If righteousness were... Well, riches, we'd all be beggars. That's really the point. And, and so while he's talking about the physically poor and the physically maimed and lame and blind, there is a spiritual, uh, a spiritual application. He looks at us and he sees our poverty and, and, he, and he invites us in and he not only accepts us, but he imparts to us a righteousness that's acceptable. If it were a wedding feast and we're going to be celebrating one when he calls us home, he would make sure not only were we invited, but we were clothed appropriately. And there are some interesting parables where he deals with that particular issue. Well, maimed just means unable to change our condition or our situation. There's nothing I can do to change me. That's his work. Lame, unable to walk or do the work that would please him or benefit others. Blind to the reality that there's nothing I can do or you can do to atone for our own sins. Now, as Jesus mentions the resurrection and, and the reality of rewards at the resurrection, one of the guys in the crowd gets all excited. And it says one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things. Verse 15, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He moves from the, the mention of resurrection immediately into the reality of the coming kingdom, the promised kingdom. And by the way, when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise first and we who are alive and remain are caught up with them, the glorious reunion, we're in the Father's house as John 14 promised we would be. We're celebrating there, worshiping. Read uh, Revelation 4 and 5 for a beautiful description of the worship we'll be joining in in heaven. There is going to be a, a celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our Lord himself, we're told, is going to gird himself and serve. We're going to be caught up in the worship and the splendor of the whole thing. But, but this idea of the coming kingdom, so important. And Jesus wants them to understand and wants us to be sure as well 
that, that not everybody who's hanging out is going to end up at that celebration. Not everyone who was at the table with him at that point would be at the table with him in the coming kingdom. Well, he tells the story then uh, of a certain man, verse 16, who gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are ready. Now, in order to understand his reaction, because it's going to be, you know, not all that happy when people begin to beg out, but, but we need to have a little bit of historical background. It is helpful to know that this isn't just like a dinner on the block where, you know, you're making a bunch of spaghetti and you tell your neighbors, hey, if you're not doing anything, drop by. This is a formal invitation to a feast that would require a lot of work and preparation. And, and when you understand that, then it makes a little more sense what takes place here. It would be, again, like a wedding feast. You know, if you're invited to a wedding that you're supposed to RSVP. Do you know that? Uh, if you don't, now you know. And, and so from this point on, accountable. But, but you're supposed to let them know you're coming. And if you say you're coming, you're supposed to show up. Why? Because they provide for you. They prepare for you. And that's the picture of, of what's taking place here. The invitations go out. The RSVPs come back and they're like, hey, we'll be there. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Now, when the time comes because there's no way to text them or email them or call them and say, hey, dinner's almost ready. It would have been days of preparation. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. I don't know what it was like at your house, but I was tormented for three days as Pam baked pies and did all this stuff. And I'm like, I, I gotta have, no, no, that's for Thanksgiving. I was like, it's Tuesday, Thanksgiving's Thursday. And, and so three days of preparation for, well, it wasn't just a one day meal though, was it? And, and, and the point is lots of prep leading up to the meal. Well, now the day comes and, and the servant sent out and it says he went to those who were invited saying, come for now all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. Now, if you take yourself away from the table that Jesus is at as he tells these stories, relates these parables, then you really miss something because what he's doing is, is he's talking to the people who invited him and he's saying, you know, I'm going to have a feast and the invitations are out and you guys are, are, are thinking you've said yes, but I want to tell you what happens when that day comes and you actually realize your yes isn't yes. And well, here, here's the deal. They began to make excuses. The first says, I bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but would anyone here buy a piece of land without ever seeing it? I mean, wouldn't you want to know, is this a swamp or is this a desert or who buys anything without having an ID? He's like, well, I, I, I bought some land and, you know, I got to go check it out. Won't it be there tomorrow and so when it says, I ask you to have me excused, all he's doing is making an excuse. Another says, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Now, again, would you buy, uh, these are working animals, oxen, would you buy them and then hope they were going to work out? No, it's just another lame excuse. And then he says, the third, still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Oh, this is the lamest of all. Why? I'm sure that, that you know, well, you should be aware. They didn't have to fight in the army. They didn't have to work. There was a season, some say as, as long as a year, 
where, where a young Jewish male having gotten married just got to hang out with his bride. Usually that produced a child. And, uh, you know, but, but anyway, the bottom line is he's making an excuse. He's been invited to a feast. He's sent his RSVP. He says, I'll be there. Now the word comes in. He's like, no, I just, I got married. It's not going to work out. I'm sure that, that she'd be happy to go and feast. And, but but the, the real issue is that that in that culture, this was much more serious than it sounds to us in ours. In discussing humbling ourselves and taking the lowest seat or the lowest position, our attitude about this can have a very profound impact on us. Think of what Jesus said in John 15, 13, where he said that greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, if our lack of humility will make it difficult for us to give away simple things, such as a better seat at a wedding or other event, imagine how difficult it would be to place others' needs higher than our own when the cost is dear. Pride would probably make it nearly impossible to lay down one's life for his friend. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.